Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and here we are at episode 11, the final episode of season one of the Chef-Timony podcast. And where else could we possibly go back to for such an occasion but that culinary oasis in the Mojave Desert, Las Vegas, Nevada. Let's get started. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef-Timony. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. I'm really glad you've joined me today for the final episode of season one. 2019 is going to see more interviews with more chefs and more lawyers as season two unfolds. But before we get there, we've got to wrap up season one today. And then I'm going to get the whole of the season uploaded to iTunes and some other podcast directories. So please stay in touch on Instagram and on the Chef Demoni website, and you'll get all the details on exactly where you can access the podcast episodes. I've had a lot of fun during the first season of Chef Timoni, and for the final episode, I thought we should have even more fun. So today, I'm bringing you two interviews from my favorite city to visit, Las Vegas. There is, of course, a lot to criticize about Vegas, but there's a lot to love too. I'm still thinking through the dark and the light of Las Vegas, and eventually those thoughts will become an article on the website, but for today, let's focus on the fun, shall we? The first interview today is with my friend Matthew Fleischer. Matt is the executive pastry chef at the incredible Picasso restaurant in the Bellagio Resort and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. The Bellagio, just in case you're someone who doesn't go to Vegas regularly, is the 1998 mega resort opened by Steve Wynn on property formerly occupied by the classic Dunes Hotel and Casino. The Bellagio cost $1.6 billion to build, making it, at the time, the most expensive hotel in the world. It also solidified an important shift in Las Vegas, starting with the Mirage property that had opened almost a decade earlier in 1989, the Vegas Strip began to focus very thoughtfully on things other than gambling. In the old days, properties relied on gaming revenue to subsidize other operations. That's why Vegas hotel rooms were so cheap and why resorts could afford to provide seemingly endless $6.99 buffets and 99 cent shrimp cocktails. From the time of the Mirage forward, though, properties relied less and less on slot machines and table games. In this new Las Vegas, the idea was to draw in visitors with other attractions. Yes, erupting volcanoes and dancing water fountains, but also art and music and food. Really, really good food. Legitimately world-class food, which was a definite change from the Vegas of old. The Bellagio may well mark the beginning of the fine dining rush in Las Vegas. When it opened, it included, and still does 20 years later, the delicious and beautiful Picasso. To helm the kitchen at Picasso, Steve Wynn brought Chef Julian Serrano to Las Vegas from San Francisco, where he was the long-standing executive chef at that city's famed Massa's restaurant. At Picasso in the Bellagio, Chef Serrano and his team have for 20 years combined Spanish influences with French cuisine, and they serve it in a truly impressive setting. It's a gorgeous room adorned with original works of Picasso, dozens of millions of dollars worth of them. I've been lucky enough to be in the kitchen at Picasso twice, and that space impresses. I've been even more lucky to spend time in that kitchen, learning from Matt Fleischer. Matt has been at Picasso almost as long as it's been around, and he's the man behind the team that puts out the restaurant's consistently amazing desserts. As you'll hear in our talk, Matt got his start in the culinary world after some time as a diamond courier with a Canadian company called Earl's. But soon on in his career, Matt found himself in Las Vegas and very soon in the pastry world at Picasso. And it's at Picasso that Matt puts his heart and many, many hours into his work. You'll hear it in his voice in our interview, the poor guy was a bit hoarse. Matt's been at Picasso long enough to see some changes to the Vegas dining scene, and some of those changes sounded familiar to me. The biggest change is dietary. No gluten, a lot of, you know, everybody has allergies now, everybody. That's a frustration I've heard and shared with many cooks. But Matt is a patient guy, and you'll also hear about the pride he takes in watching younger cooks develop. Matt is close with his team, and he follows their careers, even after they've left Picasso. And for all of his time in one of the top restaurants in Las Vegas, and indeed in the whole of the U.S., Matt is also very down-to-earth, as you can tell from his answer when I asked him for good places to eat in Las Vegas. Given my, my options, uh, Taco Bell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In-N-Out. <laughs> I love it. Uh, now that is good advice. 
you'll hear my full talk with Matt recorded in the kitchen office in Picasso in just a moment. And then after that, I head from the Strip to the heart of Fremont Street in downtown Las Vegas. For those who haven't been, downtown is a much smaller part of town and with some of the oldest hotels in Vegas. It's also a whole lot of fun. While on Fremont Street, I met up with my friend Scott Robin, a real live Vegas blogger and podcaster. My talk with Scott is coming up soon, but first to the Bellagio Resort and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. And here's my talk with pastry chef Matt Fleischer. All right, here we are on a beautiful, warm but not too warm, Sunday afternoon. We just uh, walked into the Picasso restaurant in the kitchen in the Bellagio in Las Vegas. And in a city full of incredible hotels and restaurants with all sorts of stars and awards, Picasso really is in that upper echelon of fine dining. And I'm here today, so happy to be here today with the executive pastry chef of Picasso, that's Matt Fleischer. Matt, can you start us off with just some background on the restaurant? Can you tell us uh, how many seats you have here, how many covers you do on a busy weekend? Just give us a sense of what Picasso is all about. We run about, I think it's about 90 to 100 seats in the restaurant. So on an average night, we'll do 150 covers, up towards sometimes 300 or better, uh, including parties. So we tur- we do a lot. We we turn and we get people in, we get people out. It's slowed down since we first opened almost 20 years ago. And it's changed. Just like Vegas, everything here is changing. I asked Matt to comment on the changes he's noticed in the Las Vegas dining scene, and I brought up a la carte versus fixed price menu options, wondering what Matt is seeing customers wanting lately at Picasso. Well, actually, we I kind of wish we did a la carte. We do two menus. One's a degu and one's a prefix. One's basically four courses, one's basically five. The menu hasn't changed drastically in almost 30 years. Julian's still running the same menu, more or less, that he ran when he was at Moss's back in San Francisco. But the biggest change is dietary. No gluten, a lot of, you know, everybody has allergies now, and um, everybody. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I've experienced it. Oh, yeah. But pe- they still come through the door. They still come through the door for the food and with very few minor adjustments. Uh, you know, we were one of the first major, like, real fine dining restaurants. Tell the listeners a bit about your department, Matt, if you would, pastry specifically. What's a typical day, and I, I doubt there is one, but uh, can you give us a sense of when you and your team roll in, what your preparation looks like, and then, and then how your shift goes through service? Sure. I usually roll in about between noon and one. My staff runs, comes in around 3, 3.30. We do everything here. We get nothing from the bake shop, and we buy very little as far as finished products go. Uh, so everything in terms of prep and presentation is done pretty much every day. Everything from ice cream to sorbets, plate components. My line is broken down into two sections. There's a front station and a back. Each side has three desserts plus the pedophores that come off the back. My guys know their, they know their place. They know what they have to do. And so I usually take care of like the big projects. They take care of the smaller minutiae, the stuff that they actually need to do. I don't have to guide or drive them. I'm pretty lucky. I've got a staff that does their job. That's wonderful, yeah. yeah and, and, and you've been working with them a while, so they know uh, what your expectations are? Yeah. Actually, my assistant of seven years, 12 years altogether, just quit yesterday. Oh, no. Uh, oh, it's okay. Yeah. She's going to medical school, and I wish her all the best. I think it's awesome. The young lady that I'm promoting to, the assistant, Gabby, she's been with me for over five years. She's great. She was the pastry, assistant pastry chef at Olive's for a couple of years. As far as the remaining part of my staff, I've got a good kid. He's been with us for about eight months, and uh, it ain't easy, but he shows potential. Fantastic. Good stuff. It's nice to see the younger members coming up the ranks, isn't it? It is, especially since I'm the old member. Um, (laughs) I feel your pain. (laughs) No kid, right? It's cool, though. I've always liked watching, uh, seeing young, new cooks figure it out, get better, and more to the point, I like knowing that They've gone out into this industry, into the world, and they do well because of me. Their success is mine. Absolutely. Yeah. So you can track them even after they leave here. You stay in touch, follow their career. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, let's go back, Matt, sure. a little earlier in your career. Prior to coming to Las Vegas, I read this somewhere. Is this right? Were you a diamond courier <laughs> in, I, I, in well, Dallas? Yeah. Prior to moving out here, I had all sorts of goofy jobs. Yeah, it was uh, friends of my parents. I think his name was Joseph. He, he was back in Dallas. They were Israeli diamond merchants. So I spent about a year. My job was to go there, 
pick up diamonds and or money and there was there was times when I had a locked suitcase with like either several million dollars worth of diamonds <laughs> or hundreds of thousands of dollars it was nerve-wracking but I would pick those up and either deliver them to jewelry stores or the other diamond merchants in Dallas right it, it was an interesting job uh, I'm sure it was yeah. and, and good preparation for some of the volumes of money you see coming through Las yeah. Vegas unfortunately <laughs> that money doesn't go anywhere towards me so right. it hasn't changed yeah. and how about on the culinary side before coming out to Las Vegas can you give us a sense of, uh, of where you did some cooking sure I started I've always worked in restaurants except for the diamond thing when I moved to San Francisco, I really wanted to get a job as a, a waiter or a barback or a bartender because I'd only worked the front. And the place that I went to, when I interviewed, they we had they told me they had all the servers they needed. And would I be interested in getting into the kitchen? And I was. So it was a Canadian company, Earl's. I think Earl's Tin Palace. Kind of like a... Wait, yeah, you guys know Earl's. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they, that was the first kitchen I worked in. That's right, I forgot you from up there. And it was a great experience. Stuart Fuller was an amazing chef, still a good friend of mine. And he took a chance on me in a big way. It took me about eight months to go from never having held a knife or a saute pan to kitchen manager. Wow, yeah. so rapid progression. Oh yeah, I got into it and I loved it. So yeah, from there, went to a place called Harry Denton's. I don't think it's still there. Then spent about six months for a close at a little place called the Blue Fox which was a five-star northern Italian restaurant that had been in the family for about 75 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Deep roots. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was crazy. It was a great job. I still, the restaurant, the kitchen, everything about it was just old school and really cool. Went from there to my first chef job was at this little place on Polk and Jackson called the Bell Tower. I spent about three years there actually learning how to be a chef more than anything else. And then after a brief stint at a place outside a comedy club called the Bell Rue, I was there for about six months before we moved out here. So that was about 98. Right, okay. Yeah. And 98, you came out, did you come out, were you hired by Chef Serrano to come out as part of the opening team? Oh, no, uh, not at all. Oh, okay, um, how did that work? I knew about Julian just from being in San Francisco. I moved out here to open up what was supposed to be a chain of god-awful little restaurants at the same time they were just building Bellagio and I didn't know the first thing about it somebody told me they pay room chefs $45,000 I'm like that's a fortune so I actually applied for room chef not knowing what that was I was the first person hired for Picasso they when they hired me it was as a cook they needed me on pastry for a couple days a week and I was supposed to do two days on pastry three on the hotline minute I got into pastry, that's all there was to it. And uh, Pat Costin, the first pastry chef, went to bat for me and got me in pastry full-time. And it's coming up, it's now the 20th anniversary of you you at Picasso. September will be September 28th, it's 20 years. 20 years to the day. <sighs> Amazing. Lifetime, man. <laughs> well, one of the things, maybe I could get you to comment on differences you've observed over your career between the culinary scene in Vegas and in other places. And, and one of the things that always strikes me when I come here is just the sheer staggering size of the operations. Oh, yeah. you know, we, we walked today just to come down into the kitchen with you through the back rooms and down the hallways. And uh, one time when I was here a few years ago, I remember going to a full-on staff buffet, you oh, know, yeah, for, for a staff absolutely. meal. And it was like any other Vegas buffet, except it was no no charge and all uh, hotel employees. No, you know what, the, uh, the biggest thing here is it's money. It's, it's money and it's people. Um, as far as people, this is the only place in the world I've ever worked where you don't need to want to have, you don't want need to be a chef or want to be a cook to get a job in a kitchen. A lot of people here, it's just a job. Even like my line, it's an actual pastry line, <clears throat> and it's bigger than most San Francisco kitchens, which gives us the ability to do a lot of volume at one time. But yeah, it's money, and because they have so much money to throw at this, it's not like having a small restaurant outside of the Strip or in San Francisco. You've got the backing of them, and as Julians reap the benefits, you know, with that kind of money, comes privilege and comes the ability to do whatever you want really so if there's anything about it it'd be money wow wow and i know one of the things that i've observed and heard about the restaurant about picasso is the extraordinary lengths the team will go to 
to try to get to know the guests. There seems to be an effort to make sure there are no surprises, um, right. you know, when the guests come in. So can you give us a bit of description? Of what does that look like from the preparation side? Like how do they, uh, how do you get to know the guests? How do you, how does the restaurant interact with them? Everything we do is set to cater to the customer. When the customer comes in, when the guest comes in, the server, autom- he knows who they are. They know exactly who it is. They know how many people. They know the names of everybody. So right from the start, they can actually address them on a personal level. We have books about all the art. A lot of people come in and they want to just check it out, walk around for a minute before they sit down. And on our side of it, it's just chaos. Uh, <laughs> the cool thing is the chaos does not translate to the front. It doesn't matter how crazy it is in the back. The minute the guys hit the door to the floor, it's absolute composure. Especially now with like everybody's weird dietary things. We know right away if they're vegan, gluten-free, fat-free, you name it. Um, <laughs> but uh, now the waiters, they, the servers, uh, and the runners, even the buses for that matter, make a concerted effort to do everything for and to know everything you can about the guests. So it's a more personal, more... Um, I guess enjoyable experience. I, th- I think so. And you know, one of the things that really strikes me is how guests, and I, I, I'm fortunate I sit on both sides right. from time to time. I'm a yeah. guest and sometimes I join kitchen teams. And the, the guest side, by and large, they have no understanding of the chaos and the intensity no. of the effort no. back here, right? No. But the food can only be that good if there is that intensity exactly. in the kitchen. And exactly. so it's wonderful that there can be that little shift down the hallway yep. from chaos and intensity to beautiful presentation. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, I know everybody like people love the open kitchen thing cuz you get to, you know, watch the funny monkeys. Yeah. Um <laughs> but uh everybody here, they most of the people who have been here have been here for a long time. They know their jobs, they know them well. With Julian here every night. I mean, the man still shows up every day, which is amazing for somebody in his position. Just like myself, he's always there. He, he sees what goes on, he sees what goes out. We can make the corrections and we can make things better as we go through it. Right, right. It, that's really interesting to hear that Chef is still here every mm-hmm. night because he really has been expanding in Las Vegas. He's yeah. got Lago here in the Bellagio and also his namesake, a restaurant in the, in the Aria. Right. Right, but uh, Picasso is where he likes to be during service. Yeah, I mean, he's also got, I think it's a Lago in Shanghai and one in Macau. No, he's here. This is his baby. You know, this is where everybody still comes to see him. We've got people coming here that went to Masa's. They still come here to see him and have the same food. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all him, and he loves it. I don't know why he's here. He has other things he can do. We don't need him. <laughs> he can go and be celebrity chef and have a good time, but no, every night he's on the line. There he is. I yeah. think that's so impressive because so many yeah. celebrity chefs, they get to a level and they're, you know, not really in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really impressive. Can you tell us, Matt, give us an example or two of something you're particularly proud of these days on uh, in your department. Maybe it's an ingredient you're working with or a technique or something. If I walk in for dinner tonight, you would really recommend I give a try on the, on the pastry side. Being a cook, it, you always evolve, you always develop and you always grow. We don't do a lot with like the goofy stuff, the molecular gastronomy that was big a few years ago. Thankfully it's gone. But doing my job, doing our job is a lot about solving problems. One of the cool things, it's a simple dish, but I have a uh, pineapple side down cake, more or less on the menu. Traditionally, you have a cast iron skillet. You put everything in, it takes a long time to cook and it all gets nice and caramely and chewing brown. We don't have that option. So in order to get that, and I, it didn't even occur to me to my old assistant pointed out that that's what I'd done. We make a compound butter with uh, caramelized pineapple and butter, and we use that to saute the pineapple before we bake off the cakes, which kind of forces the flavor and the texture and the uh, appearance of what you would normally get on a traditional way out. I didn't think anything of it until my assistant pointed that out, and she's like, that's really cool, and I thought, yeah, that is. <laughs> <laughs> did it without without intent. It's what we do. What we do, and out it came. I have no schooling, so I just kind of, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, I'll make it work. Yeah, I like the attitude. Absolutely. And you, and you know what's interesting? I was talking to a friend in Vancouver for a previous episode of this podcast, and his son, interestingly enough, 
is a head chef at an Earl's restaurant in Kelowna in the Okanagan really? Valley. Uh, really? Valley. Yeah. Right on. And this kid started when he was 14. Yep. And talk about you know no schooling. He started in the dish pit at 14. Yep. Worked his way up, and now he's opened uh, restaurants for them and, and the head chef. So it seemed to be the way to learn. Well, the cool thing about those guys, I mean, the Fullers, they're a great family. Unlike most restaurants or most restaurant chains, they're fully uh, invested in their people. You can start really young, they move you up, you get to a certain point. If it wasn't for the fact that I would have had to go to Canada to go for two years to go to school, they actually put their employees through culinary school. Their whole intent is to bring up, train, develop, and keep the right people. Just like him, that is how they do it, and it's, it's always been impressive, yeah. always. Yeah. And it's sort of a tie to the to the history of the industry, right? Absolutely. Uh, people start young and work up. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Matt, just a couple more questions sure. here because I'm personally interested, and I know some listeners will be interested, in a, a Vegas chef's thoughts on places to eat when you're not working. So I know you work some really long hours. Do you tend to go out for a bite after service, or do you just head home to bed? And when you do go out, where do you go? Where are some places that uh, I don't know of as a tourist? Oh, Christ. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, I, you can't tell, but I don't eat much. Um, <laughs> no, usually when I get out of here, all I want to do is, is drive real fast, take lots of chances, and get home as quickly <laughs> as I can. Uh, given my, my options, Taco Bell. Okay. <laughs> In and out. I love uh, it. We also, we, when we are home... We generally just go to like the, the sports bars, Timbers or uh, Sierra Gold. The food's always good. My wife can play. There's no pressure. We really don't go out much. Right, right. You know? yeah, yeah, at you, all. You work with food this much, you don't Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, that's terrific. Listen, Matt, thank you so much for doing sure. this. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate you oh, taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thanks, brother. All right. I like it. I really enjoyed catching up with Matt. He's the kind of hardworking and talented chef I admire. Matt puts in so many hours to create experiences for the guests who come to Picasso. He works in a restaurant with millions and millions of dollars of art on the wall and no doubt of wine in the cellars, yet he's the most gracious, down-to-earth guy you could hope to meet. If you're in Vegas, I say get to Picasso, enjoy a wonderful meal, and then send thanks back to the kitchen to Matt for the incredible desserts. And now, to downtown Las Vegas. But first, a tiny bit of background. Before I started Cheftimony, I listened to a whole lot of podcasts. I still do. And of all the podcasts I enjoy, there are two that really inspired me to start my own. It's been an unspoken goal of mine to have hosts from each of these two podcasts as guests on Cheftimony. And today, half of that goal is accomplished as I talk to Scott Robin, the founder and host of the Vital Vegas podcast, and also the Vital Vegas blog and the very informative Twitter account. As a fan of all things Vegas, I rely on Scott's irreverent take on the goings-on in the city. His podcast is fun, it's intentionally smart-ass, and it's a reliable source for the latest on the Vegas scene, including its culinary scene. Scott, smart-ass notwithstanding, is also a very friendly and really helpful guy who took the time to answer my questions about podcasting and to encourage me to get started. So it was a real pleasure to interview him for the show. Oh, and that second podcast, that's the Slate Political Gab Fest, a wonderful show on U.S. politics that has nothing to do with cooking. But one of the hosts of the Gab Fest, Emily Bazelon, is a law grad who's a lecturer at uh, Yale Law School. So with New Year's goals in mind, one of mine is to interview Emily Bazelon on Cheftimony in Season 2. Fingers crossed, but first to my talk with Scott. We met up at the Four Queens Casino on Fremont Street, so you're going to hear the glorious sound of slot machines in the background. In fact, Scott was gambling throughout our interview, playing the popular Wheel of Fortune slot machine, although not nearly as successfully as the woman seated next to us who kept winning. Throughout her talk, you'll hear Scott lamenting that he needed a spin, and that's a reference to the bonus round on the Wheel of Fortune machine. Scott and I canvassed some of his favorite places to eat in Las Vegas, both downtown and on the Strip, and we talk about whether Las Vegas remains a value travel destination. Lately, casinos have been tightening up their finances, which means odds are changing on popular table games. In most places now, for example, hitting a blackjack pays 6 to 5 instead of the traditional 3 to 2, so if you had bet $10, you'd be paid 12 instead of 15 and it's harder and harder to find casinos with low table minimums. You'll hear Scott talk about one of his favorite properties that still has three to two blackjack and $5 table minimums. 
And then there are the dreaded resort fees, an additional charge tacked onto hotel rooms that take some visitors by surprise and annoy many. Scott and I also talk about the phenomenon of surge pricing at restaurants. Similar to rideshare pricing, restaurants in Vegas are now charging more when more people want to go to the restaurants. And casinos have monitoring systems in place to decide whether a patron has gambled enough to have earned those famous free cocktails. But in amongst all that, Scott has some value picks to share. They have this place called Wana Taco. It's a taco place with the best hot dog downtown. There's wow. another insider tip. And that is a fantastic value. insider. That is huge value. And Something it's culinary related. Absolutely. Thank you. And of course, Scott has some great thoughts on what Las Vegas is truly all about. Vegas is a town built on almost, yes. almost jackpots, two, two, two of whatever, <laughs> and then the third thing, it's a town built on hope, on optimism, but ultimately it's built on fun. So Las Vegas is a bit different from other places, and Scott has recommendations on everything from how to find free cookies on the strip to, and I'm not even kidding here, which brothel outside of Vegas has a restaurant with great hamburgers. So now let's head to the Four Queens Casino for my talk and lots of laughs with Scott Robin of Vital Vegas. All right, here we are at, live at the Four Queens in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I'm delighted to be speaking with Scott Robin of the Vital Vegas blog and podcast and Twitter account. And seriously, Scott is one of two main podcast inspirations behind Chefdemony. The other is the Slate Political Gab Fest pretty far away from uh, the Vital Vegas podcast, but Scott sort of showed me how it was possible to be a podcaster. I tune into his podcast every chance I get. I've listened to every episode, I think. So Scott, first of all, thanks for meeting up. Thanks for being on Chef Timon. <laughs> I'm so sorry that you've listened to every episode. <laughs> I should give out medals or some kind of prize for anyone who does that. I agree. I'll give you, <laughs> I'll give you my mailing address. <laughs> Well, listen, let's start with Vital Vegas because it really is my number one resource when I'm planning to come to Vegas, which I try to do a couple of times a year. And it's also what I what I like about it, and I think a lot of people like about it, is it's really fun to listen to when you're not in Vegas and gives you a little taste of what the, the city is, is all about when you're away from it. So can you tell the listeners, Scott, just give us the short description. What's Vital Vegas all about? My whole, uh, like I have a day job. I, I work at Fremont Street Experience downtown. That's my job job. Vital Vegas is my hobby, my, I guess you would call it passion, as it's as passionate as I get, if it's not Wheel of Fortune related. And it really is just, I really want people that visit Vegas to not waste time or money. So the things that I do or that I recommend, it's the sole purpose is to increase their enjoyment and to try and pare away some of the you know, if you're given 50 options, which is the one that's that's worth your time and your money? So that's it all day long. I try to do it in a smart-assy way. I don't know what language you allow on your show, but oh, it's, it's, a, it's wide open. I interview chefs. Oh, oh I'm so sorry. Oh my God, Did, I never realized how saucy the language is with chefs. Absolutely. Yeah, I just uh, talked to a guy at Esther's Kitchen, highly recommended in Las Vegas, kind of off off the beaten path, but trash mouth and he his PR guy actually has been working with him because he knows podcasters are going to talk to him and others in the media are going to talk to him and that he should probably refrain from using the F word so much so he's actually trying to cultivate a more appealing language but anyway the whole point is for Vital Vegas is I try to do it in a way that people pay attention to so traditional media does their thing more power to them nobody cares it's white noise because everybody does it. So I try to share a lot of the same news. I either break the stories or I share their news, but I put a spin on it that makes it a little more smart-assy. That's the whole theory behind it. Well, and that brings me to a question, which is journalism. I know you've said constantly, look, I'm just a hobbyist. I do this for fun. I'm a podcaster. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't have to be the one unearthing and breaking these <laughs> stories, but it seems lately, over the last few months, you've been breaking a lot of stories. And why do you think that is? Are you just 
more confident? Are you more reckless? Why isn't the mainstream media picking up these stories, these scoops that you are? I think it's a fascinating area. It is complex. It is nuanced, so I have no interest in the nuance. No, I think social media is changing the game. I think your podcast is a perfect example. You are not beholden to anyone. You can state your opinion without having somebody overseeing it or editing it or changing it or, or forcing you to do spin. So many traditional journalists are beholden to advertisers. So in Las Vegas, it's a very close-knit community. It's a perfect example of where the traditional journalists are really held back in expressing their opinions or unearthing stories because nobody wants that supply of ad money to be cut off. Or in Vegas, it's actually about access. So if you make somebody mad or express an opinion, they will cut you off. They won't invite you. They won't send you news releases. They won't invite you to, to their parties or openings. For some people, it doesn't matter. For me, I'm not beholden to anybody as a hobby. I can do and say what I want. There's a certain amount of liability, you know, legally, if you, you know, besmirch somebody's reputation. But other than that, I don't have a boss. So I can also share things that are rumors and speculation that a lot of journalists are not comfortable doing. So sometimes they call it citizen journalism. I call it doing whatever I want. If people don't find it of value, they can unfollow, they don't have to listen, but a lot of people are listening. So for me, it's it really is a form of amusement for myself, but I think I can get to stories quicker. I think I can dig things up that others can't. And I think there's a certain amount of freedom in doing a podcast or a Twitter account or a Facebook group or a blog or a website that's not owned or overseen and you're just not beholden to anybody. The sad truth is, especially in Las Vegas, there's not a lot of resources for actual journalism. I don't know if I could do this in Seattle or New York or Chicago, it's freaking Vegas. I'm gonna have fun and people that look at my account and blog and listen to my podcast are having fun. That's my only goal. Well, let's shift the focus or focus the focus onto the food, which is one of the things that I absolutely love about Vegas. One of the things I'd like your thoughts on, Scott, is whether Las Vegas is still a value proposition for people coming in. And the difference, I think, even from the time that I started coming here, which is roughly 20 years ago, you know, it, this town is no longer the 99 cent shrimp cocktail and it's no longer the 6.99 buffet. I know there are instances of that, but pricing does seem to be moving up on the culinary side, which is what I noticed the most, but I think on, every, on everything. So give us your thoughts on that. Is Vegas still a good value proposition? Well, I think it's a great question. I think I and others think about it a lot. People interested in the, in the present and future of Vegas. So here's an example of where it matters. So until recently, if you went online or went into a restaurant, the menu would have prices. So the reason they don't have prices on a menu, either in the present moment or online, is flex pricing, is surge pricing essentially. And people that are familiar with rideshare understand why they don't provide that price. It's because on a Tuesday night, the prices are different than a Saturday night. My hackles go up when that happens. And I think that speaks to a change in Vegas from a kind of freewheeling town where gambling paid for everything to a town where everything has to pay for itself. So in the showroom, you're not gonna get those you know, they're not papering the casino with show tickets because that theater, that show has to pay for itself. That parking garage has to pay for itself. So you get paid parking. Everything has to be self-sustaining. Bookkeepers, bean counters are involved. So the overall question of whether it's a value, I actually think the answer is yes. Because if you compare a room night in Vegas, even with a resort fee, this horrible travesty of a BS charge, even if you compare that with the resort fee to Chicago, LA, New York, whatever destination, I think Vegas is a value. 
people get caught up in what it's called because it feels like a ripoff, the value is still there. The problem with Vegas is nobody's thinking about the perception problem. And the perception problem is, what do you call it? A resort fee is a nasty, ugly thing. If you folded it into the price of the room, it would still be one third of a similar destination. But you have a resort fee and people see it as shifty and shady, that's a problem. So I think what you're speaking to is, it truly is a question of the perception of Vegas as a value. Do I think Vegas is a value? Yes. Do I think the perception has changed? Yes. Somebody got a spin. Oh man, it's not me. You know, we're 30 This interview has cost me $30 so far. I, I want you to keep track so your listeners understand the true ramification. She's going to get 500! Oh, your podcast. That's a four queens thing. That's a $1 machine. That's huge. Don't give it all back. Just give 350 back for the local economy. Are you still recording? Absolutely. That's a good hit. Congrats. Uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> we were talking about value propositions, yes. and I think what happens is you pay a resort fee, but then you win $500, Exactly. Right? <laughs> it costs nothing. Where else can you go? I mean, if you go to another city, you can have fun, I guess. But, you know, where can you go that your gambling pays for your whole damn trip? Right. You know, and I live here and it pays for, for my lunch pretty much every day. So the answer is yes, Vegas is a value, but the perception of Vegas as a value has changed. And that is a huge problem for Vegas. Well, listen, Scott, let's move. Let's move, move to a different to machine because this one's this killing. Look, let's switch. Okay. Since you're not gambling, I am. Yeah, Keep absolutely. it recording because oh, when recording. I hit this damn spin and I get the thousand. All right, Scott and I are switching seats so we can play the other machine. <laughs> that would be his collect ticket warning beep. Okay. I'll move my. I didn't know. I didn't know that was the name of what that was. Yeah, Thank you for letting me. Not at all. She's literally getting a spin every two spins. Oh, yeah, How much are you up? Oh, she's up $600. It's not like we're prying or anything. Come on, a big one. She's nailing it. Oh my goodness. Yeah, she's up over $600. Hey, we're, and we're down 30 so congrats on that. Well, let's, let's talk about some restaurants. And, and I want to divide it into two categories, which is pretty obvious, downtown and the Strip. Downtown, definitely going to be better value, I think. But give us a few highlights on, on each of those uh, places and, and why. Give us a few hotspots. I know Pizza Rock, and I think Pizza Rock will be one of them downtown. Of course! Yeah, yeah Pizza Rock is always going to win best pizza in Vegas, maybe the world. But I found another pizza that's very good. The aforementioned Esther's Kitchen is a kind of a new entry. This guy, his James last Trees. name is Trees. Oh, thank you for paying attention to the, the uh, changing landscape in Vegas. Uh, James Trees, he's opening two new places, one in the Stratosphere, one in Tivoli Village, which uh, nobody, no tourist would ever go to, or even a local probably wouldn't go to, but just a really talented chef, very passionate, uses the F word a lot, but his food is really great, a great Italian. They don't carry Captain Morgan, so I don't know how often I'll go, off the record, but yeah, downtown just over the last few years has really had kind of a re-envisioning what downtown can be because it had this kind of gritty reputation and now legitimate chefs are coming downtown and there are some restaurants that are just really just reliably great. You go to a therapy or you go to a Carson Kitchen or you go, you know, these steakhouses, some of these places are just traditional steakhouses like Vic and Anthony's at Gold Nugget. They're just really good. The Strip is always evolving. They're all, you're always going to have these high-end places that are uh, way too expensive for me. But once a month, once every couple months, or if you're a tourist, those are the places you should go because you'll never have an experience like that in your hometown. They just don't exist. And Vegas has this kind of creme de la creme of like, oh my God, that, that wasn't just a meal of this trip. This was a meal of a decade. 
amazing food, amazing service. Every component just hits all the right notes. Those are the ones I seek out. And I just had one at STK. Again, it's an annoying and loud. The food is just off the chart great. Clio at SLS is going away because of the new ownership. You have to, if you come to Vegas, just go to Clio, go to SDK. There's just certain places you have to hit when you're here because it really is a, I'm not gonna say once in a lifetime because the next time you come to Vegas, you go to the same place, but there's certain places you have to hit because you're like, I didn't know that food like that exists. I didn't know that service like that exists. And even if you're going, you know, if your meal costs 150 bucks, you're like, I would have paid 300. I would have paid 500 because money. Well, is don't gone. tell the restaurants that. <laughs> <laughs> true. No, but your point, like I have had amazing food in Vegas. And what I find really interesting and really differentiating from other places is the service. Honestly, the service is hands down fantastic. People seem genuinely excited and motivated to provide good service. We've all been commenting on it this trip. I'm here with three other people. It is just head and shoulders different and better from a, a, a standard experience where we happen to live in Vancouver, which has pockets that have great service, but it's across the board yeah. fantastic. It's a, it is a service-oriented ta town. So whether it's a dealer or a cocktail waitress or a waiter or a busser, like that orientation, and, and I'm not saying that people are genuinely enthusiastic <laughs> yeah. about serving others but the training and the culture it really is the culture of vegas to be customer first and visitor first and client first that so it, it's noticeable and it's weird because as a local you'll see it in like the pharmacy or you'll see it you'll see it in weird places and you're like that person is really just genuinely friendly and service oriented and i think it's just because in a town, it's like Hawaii. Like certain parts of Hawaii, if you go to Honolulu, everybody's just service oriented because it's a tourism town. So tourism town is gonna, people are just raised on it. There, I, I think a lot of people that come to Vegas know they're gonna be in the service industry. So if you're not predisposed to it, why would you go to Vegas? Right. Because that's kind of the job you're gonna get. But yeah, consistently, I love the places that are kind of old school service too, where like I just had dinner at Four Queens, Hugo Cellar. Ah, we were there two nights ago. Oh, and you it, were? Yeah, it was yeah. amazing. It's the yeah. service is what differentiates it. The, the food is pretty good, yeah. but the service makes the food even better because they really understand. So I was doing a calculation. This waiter was doing this, they do this table side salad. And I said, how many times have you done this? And he said, 40 times a night. So I'm not great at math, but I know that's 200 times a week. I said, how long have you been here? 19 years. Wow. He has made that salad almost a quarter million times. A quarter million tableside salads? You got the hang of it? Yeah, you got you that salad You better dialed. enjoy doing it. So that guy, he's funny. He's, I don't know. Uh, for me, that was just like, I don't know where else to go for to find a guy that's made a salad a quarter million, a quarter million <laughs> times. It doesn't exist. He was great. I love it. Yeah, we had, we had a fantastic time. And it was, you know what I love about it? It's kind of tongue in cheek, right? It's like the old school Vegas experience. You could look at it and say, oh, this is a bit cheesy. They're handing a long stem rose to the, to the ladies. But if you take it for what it is, which is, you know, uh, honoring Vegas's history and just everybody having fun, if you're willing to, to step into that, you can just have an amazing time. Well, that is the Canadian way of describing okay. it. But the Las Vegas way of describing it is, if you don't get lucky after dinner at Hugo's Cellar, you will never get lucky. You might as well be a monk. Hugo Cellar is a the conduit to making sweet love. Because if you give a woman wow. a rose... You should be writing their tagline. You can tell this guy does marketing for a living. So you mentioned STK, Steakhouse in the Cosmopolitan. And I had a question, and this is really... I'm, a very leading question here because I think it's a great tip for my listeners if they're in Vegas. I have heard, I have not experienced it, but I've heard through your podcast that there is a 
high limit slots room on the Vegas Strip that has the best cookies in town. <laughs> so <laughs> that is a hot tip for Chef Demoni listeners. So yes. tell us about that. That is a weird tip. So um, yes, the high limit room. People are sometimes put off by the idea of a high limit slot room because they're like, well, I can't afford that. But I'm telling you, in these high limit slot rooms, you're treated differently, and quite often the machines are like the the machine that they have on the floor. I don't I don't even know why they're in there. So at the Cosmopolitan, they have this little. It's the only place I've seen with this offering. They have cookies, melon, fruit, kind of little snacks. So I start out just walking by but I see the cookies and I make a beeline they're always delicious they're free there doesn't seem to be a monitor <laughs> I would feel guilty if I went to Cosmo grabbed a cookie and didn't play but here's the great news about Cosmo I think those machines are loose for this trip so for that cookie I sometimes have made $300 <laughs> eating a cookie in a high limit room and my significant other has said that they're other offerings are actually flavorful too. They're vegetables and fruit, which I don't really, I've never taken part in. She says they're of very high quality. So that's like a little insider tip is go buy the Cosmo High Limit Room, get a little piece of melon or a cookie, throw caution in the wind because here's the real insider tip. All right, Scott is looking over his Yes, shoulder. I am. Oh, I forgot it was a podcast. So the real insider tip is that we can sit here in a dollar machine all night. Good, bad, other. She's very lucky. The higher a denomination you play, the more frequent the payouts. So whatever your tolerance is in your budget to play a higher denomination machine, the more likely you are to win because higher denomination machines pay more frequently. It's just a fact of science. So if you go by the Cosmo, you can play on the floor. It's a great time. It's a distinctive hotel. If you go in the high limit room, throw your money, whatever limited funds you have into a $5 machine. Could lose, but when you hit, you hit on a different level. I do not play a $5 machine all the time, but when I do, it tends to uh, move the needle. Move the needle. Yes. Yeah. That is not food related. No. But the cookie is, the cookie is have a cookie while you're partying at the $5 machine. Let's talk about a related to culinary theme and one a theme that Vegas is very well known for, which is what we've got in our hands right now, booze. Yes. So the question is, on the booze front... <laughs> I love that you're distracted by the gambling. Yeah, exactly. As am I. As Other yeah. people gambling is pretty it's entertaining. Pretty distracting. The booze front. So here's here's the question. I think people who haven't come to Vegas recently always think about the free cocktail. That's sort of the, the number one easiest comp to get another spin. <laughs> yeah, and people have this notion that you know you sit down at a uh, at a slot machine and you get and you get some free uh, you get some free drinks. Which does still happen, but it seems to me that things are tightening up a little bit here, or at least becoming a little more scientific. And I know you talked about this years ago, and you continue to talk about it, but what are your thoughts now on the drink monitoring? First, tell us what that is, and, and give us your thoughts. Yeah, so that's a big deal. Kind of, yeah, marginally food-related. Food related. Yeah. yeah. So the expectation has always been you come to Vegas, you gamble, or not in some cases. People think you just come into a casino and just drink for free. So casinos realize that the cost of alcohol is a thing. It's a hard cost for them. So that was It's, it's a lot harder in Canada, just so you know. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. So at some point they realize, look, we don't mind giving away free liquor, but it's, it's never really been free. Gambling has paid for the free liquor. In recent years, I actually broke a couple of stories related to drink monitoring. What that is, is that the casinos are paying attention to how much you play. And you have to earn your free drink. You can still get a free, I'm putting quotation marks around it, because gambling has always paid for the free drinks. but. They've actually created machines and mechanisms and procedures to make sure that you're doing your part. 
So, in most casinos now, say at Video Poker, you walk up, you put in $20, you'll get a drink. If you bet the minimum, if you bet a quarter for two minutes, you're not going to get another drink. You're not meeting the, the qualification threshold. This really became evident at video poker at casino bars, but it's true throughout the casino that you really need to play in a way that warrants free liquor. So casinos have gotten, I would say, smarter. It's maybe not as freewheeling as it used to be back in the day, because back in the day, you wouldn't even have to put that 20 in. You would just get that drink and you're sitting at a a machine. Now they pay attention. The real news is that this is coming to the casino floor. It's being tested in Laughlin. It's gonna be all the machines. At this point, it's mostly on the machines at the video poker bars. But I have changed my perspective. From the beginning, I was outraged. And now I realize the drink monitoring actually gets rid of kind of the freeloaders. Sure. Not to disparage freeloaders. But if you're an actual gambler like you and I are. (laughs) I want a place to sit. I want that machine to be for the person who's actually investing. And that's what casinos want as well. They're like, we have a number of things we're going to give you. Just play. That's all we ask. So I'm up for that. I'm playing. I'm going to get my drink. And it takes the pressure off of bartenders to be the gatekeeper for those free drinks. The light is green or the light is red. If it's red, play a little bit more. If it's green, you get your drink. So that has changed. It contributes to the issue that Vegas has of nickel and diming. But in my world, that makes sense to me. I do marketing for a collective of casinos, but my opinion is outside of that. And my opinion is get out of my chair. If you're right. there to put a dollar in a machine and get a drink, that, that makes no sense in any business paradigm I've ever heard. So get out of my chair, let me play, because I need to drink. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm tempted to leave it there, but I'm not going to. I've got no, one, no. More, one more question. I've still got $14. $14. So. <laughs> we got to wrap this up quick, or oh, Scott's got to so hit a spin. Sad. Come on, oh, eventually okay. we have to hit just one spin per show yeah, is exactly. the average. That is the Las Vegas Visitors and Convention just, Authority actually that guarantees just, that guarantees one during spin. the period of a podcast, you have to get a freaking spin. <laughs> it's coming. Come on. So last yes. question is, give us a couple of your back to value. Give us a couple of your value picks, whether you're downtown or the Strip. And for food, we oh! got a Right. Now Scott's going to be very distracted. We are $93 into our podcast. So you tell me when to push it. Oh. I will split this with you. 95 to 5. Seems <laughs> fair. No, I'm not going to because you're not my girlfriend. And you have no right to the money I put in. See, in her world, she's like, put the money in and I get money out. I'm like, no, that's my money. And here it goes. You better include this in the podcast. I don't want to see you cutting this this out because it violates some Canadian. Oh, come on. (laughs) We spent an hour to to win $40. So here's my superstitious rule. Here's the top tip. Always be thankful Mm -hmm. when you're playing a slot machine because they have ears. And feelings. You can actually see they look like speakers, but they're ears. So if you think you a-hole, you only gave me $40. That machine's gonna take that $40 back. But if you say thank you for that 40 or five or two, whatever it gives you, be thankful, it will give you more. Top tip. Top tip. Unrelated to the right. culinary world. <laughs> well, except it might buy dinner. So, <laughs> so value propositions, back to value, both on the strip and downtown. And one place, I took my nephew here yesterday, we did some gambling, because they have $5 tables, they have three to two blackjack, we didn't eat there, but I pointed it out to him, the Ellis Island barbecue, while we were playing down on just off the strip. Yeah, you have touched upon oh, a gold fun. mine of value. Ellis Island, across the board, even it, it's known for its karaoke, avoid the karaoke, it's horrible. My girlfriend embarrassed me doing the karaoke. It's about the barbecue and the low table minimums. It's literally a block off of the strip. I would spend 
all day and night at Ellis Island before I would go to one of the big casinos if you gamble at all. The barbecue is one of the best in Vegas. Great value. They appreciate their customers, which, as we've talked about, is kind of a it's hit and miss on the rest of the strip, but Ellis Island is gold. So the equivalent of that, I think, would be Binion's. They got barbecue. Okay. They do six to five blackjack. What? I don't pay attention. I know. And it's Binion's. And they got triple zero roulette. Wow. I can't talk badly about them unless I'm drunk because I work for Fremont Street Experience and they're one of our member casinos. But that triple zero thing is one of my pet peeves. Thankfully, they don't listen to podcasts. But... Yeah, <laughs> but Ellis Island is gold in a, in a number of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And downtown Binion's and, oh, this, I wanted to ask you, because, oh, you know what? This just reminded me. I went to check, I am such a high roller. I, I checked my <laughs> um, club member, whatever it is, card at the D, and I thought, you know, what do I have? A month of free hotel rooms? Do I have, they probably got a car for me. And uh, what I had was five dollars in free slot play and ten dollars in resort food, which I think will buy me close to three American Coney dogs. It I, will not, unfortunately, <laughs> because they're really expensive. <laughs> it would buy you a dog and maybe a soda, but you got to get the fries too. Absolutely. So. Yeah, but, the D. You know, some of these places, like I play at Four Queens a lot. So I mentioned going to Hugo's Cellar. That was paid for by Four Queens. Like those points and those comp dollars accumulate pretty quickly. So always use your loyalty card. That's always a top tip for anybody visiting Vegas. Even if you never expect to come back again, even during your short trip, they track that. I'm earning points as we speak. I've gotten 347, right? I don't know, Absolutely. but you can pay, especially at these old school places like Fort Queens, you, you know, I paid for my meal. They've got a hot dog that's even better than the one at the D. They have this place called Juana Taco. It's a taco place with the best hot dog downtown. There's wow. another insider tip. And that is a fantastic value. insider. That is huge value. And Something it's culinary related. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We've got <laughs> Let's cap it there while we're ahead. Woo. Scott, thanks so Can much for being on Chef the uh, I want. I need to oh, make sure. Oh man, absolutely. <laughs> and that is that is going in the episode introduction. Scott, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course, I could talk for hours or at least four or five more spins. Yeah. Oh! Hey! No, keep okay. it recording. We're gonna keep it this on This is gonna here. be the big one. This was the time that someone on your podcast won a thousand dollars on the wheel of or some spin. variation We're of one thousand spin here it is so the thing about vegas is never 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 <laughs> remember gratitude never gratitude remember what you lost only remember what and it's true in social media too only share when you win people think i'm super lucky but that's because every post is a winner and i'm like but what about the 16 times I lost? I don't share those. No. I share the winners. As I said to a couple of buddies back home from my hometown in Thunder Bay, I was texting them and they said, how are you doing on the gambling? And I said, well, look, if you ignore all my losses over the last four days and count the last hour, I'm up 35 bucks. <laughs> Thank you. And so I tweeted the other day something I think was deeply profound. I don't know if anybody uh, agreed, but Vegas is a town built on almosts. Almost jackpots, two, two of whatever, and then the third thing, it's a town built on hope, on optimism, but ultimately it's built on fun because if you're playing a slot machine to make money, you've, you have serious judgment issues. If you're looking at it as an entertainment expense, you've nailed it, and you're always gonna get more than your dollar actually buys. You're gonna have a good time, and, that, and that's not as a marketer, that's as a human being who plays slots and table games and drinks in Vegas. I never feel like I'm ripped off. No matter how much I lose, it's not really losing if you consider, if I go to a movie, what do you expect to get out of a movie? You're entertained for two hours, that's, and that's, that's what I do at the slot machine. And sometimes it pays for my room or my, uh, what do you call them, prostitute, or my, <laughs> I've never been to a prostitute. Are you gonna put that on the show? <laughs> but I know you have been to a brothel, but oh. only for journalistic purposes. <laughs> you should go. You know why? Yeah. Because the hamburgers at Sherry's oh, Ranch okay. 
are delicious. Really? Yes. Okay, this this may be the best Vegas culinary tip of the <laughs> of the night. Okay, that's it. We can't do better. <laughs> How much fun was that? Scott, thanks so much for meeting up. It was great to connect again. Oh, and after Scott and I finished the interview, we played some tandem slots on two specific Wheel of Fortune machines that Scott speaks of often on his podcast. To hear how that went, head on over to the Vital Vegas podcast, episode number 91. I'll put a link in the show notes. And that is it for season one of the Cheftimony podcast. Thank you for being here with me. I really appreciate it. As I say, please keep an eye on Cheftimony.com and on the Instagram account, and you'll know when the whole of season one goes live on iTunes and elsewhere. And season two is coming up soon. I'm really excited to share it with you. As always, if you have a comment or a question for the show, or a chef or a lawyer you'd like to hear interviewed, I'd love to hear from you. You can message me on Instagram or Facebook or send me an email to graham at chefdemoni.com. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you soon for season two right here on Chef Demoni. I don't think so. I'm just going to, okay. Yeah, so we're recording, and I will um, edit the hell out of this later. <laughs> <laughs> at least you know the volume will be the same on both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that level looks good, actually. It's funny. We're good. Okay. Away we go.